One of the things that parents will often do when their kids are little is read them a bedtime story before they go to bed. Sometimes Christian parents will use that time to share or read stories from the Bible with their children before they go to bed. When my kids were little, there was a series at the time of uh, Bible stories written for kids. Uh, It was called the Hear Me Read series. They were written in a way that kids could both understand, but then also they were written so simply that they could become some of the first books that children would actually read as well. And and some of the the books in that series had titles like um, Jibber Jabber, This is uh, all about the Tower of Babel. We're going to be getting into that account in Genesis next week. Or sit down. It's about Mary and Martha and how Martha needed to sit down and listen to Jesus instead of, you know, worrying about all the, the cleaning. Or too tall, too small. Any idea who that's about? Zacchaeus, I heard it. Yeah, Zacchaeus, that wee little man who wanted to see Jesus. And so everyone else was too tall and he was too small. Well, today we're going to be getting into one of the accounts in the Bible, the stories in the Bible that oftentimes parents will tell their children. In this series of Hear Me Read, it was called Drip Drop. It was the story of Noah and the flood and the ark. This is a story that oftentimes parents do tell their children. And in fact, not only do they tell their children about Noah and the ark and the rainbow and all those things, but a lot of times even, uh, maybe this is true of you, parents will sometimes actually decorate their children's nursery with some themes from Noah's ark. Here's a few examples. And as you look at these wall decals, Everything looks so cute and the animals look so cuddly, right? And it's good to consider Noah and the ark. And there's definitely some great things that we're going to get out of this, like the fact that God is filled with grace and that he keeps his promises. But stick with me for a moment. This is honestly kind of a curious type of story to share with kids before they go to bed. Hey kids, I got a bedtime story for you. It's the one where God got mad at the entire world and killed everyone with a flood. Let's go to sleep. Sleep tight. (laughs) And yet that's the reality of the flood of Noah and the ark. The truth of the matter is that the story of the flood is a tragic story. In fact, as biblical historians do a little bit of, you know, investigation, uh, Genesis 5 is a genealogy of uh, some of the, the first families who ever lived, starting with Adam and going to Noah. And as they study those genealogies, and also understanding that people lived about six to eight times longer than they do today. I want you to think about this when it comes to the destruction of the flood. As best we can guess, the amount of people on the earth at that time was not in the hundreds, but it was in the high hundreds of millions, or even some speculate there could have been over a billion people. 1,500 years after Adam was the flood. 
and all of those people died, except for eight. Maybe up to a billion people killed in a worldwide flood, except for eight. You know what? They didn't have that page in Drip Drop. And yet it's good for us to consider. It's good for us to think about not just the the blessing that came out of it, but also the tragic nature of what happened. Because through that, we learn some things about God. We learn about his justice. We learn about his judgment. We learn about his grace. We learn about his salvation. And, And that's what we're going to be doing today as we unpack this Bible story that almost everyone has heard in one way or another. As was mentioned earlier, we are in this series where we're taking a look at the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And the reason why this series is so important is when you go back to the beginning, you begin to find some clarity around life questions that people still have today. And where we left off last week is we unpacked, we looked at the first murder that happened in world history where Cain murdered his brother Abel because in part he was unable to handle and navigate the anger that he was feeling towards God. And at the very end of that chapter, chapter four, the verse we looked at said this. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And the thing I want you to understand about this this thing with Cain leaving the Lord's presence is that part of this was physical. Like Cain physically moved away from where God had originally planted Adam and Eve. But the bigger part of this, the bigger issue is that Cain also left God's presence spiritually. What I mean by that, and Cain never came back from this, is that from this point forward, God was no longer the Lord and master of his life. It was no longer God over everything. God was not the Lord of his life. And I want you to think about that for a moment, because how many generations in to world history is Cain? Just two. You had Adam, then you had Cain. And there's already a segment of the world's population, a segment of Adam's family that has entirely gone away from God that no longer follows him. And when that happens, well, the years that come next or the family line that comes after that, it usually only gets worse. And that's what exactly what happened. Over 1,500 years, there was a segment of the world, at least that's what it started with, where God was no longer the master of their lives. And then we pick it up in Genesis chapter 6. When human beings began to increase in number on earth, maybe upwards to a billion people, certainly in the hundreds of millions, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, and that's the Hebrew way of saying uh, the people who followed God, the people who had the Lord as the Lord of their life, saw that the daughters of humans, well, what kind of daughters would not be daughters of humans? We all, they all are, right? This is the Hebrew word of, way of saying those who were born or people who were born into families that did not have the Lord as the Lord of their life. They saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. 
So you had these two families, starting with Cain, one that followed the Lord, one who didn't. And then over time, those families, well, they started to intermarry. And things just continued to get worse. And young people, um, you've heard me say this before, and I will say it again. Just another great encouragement and reminder that as you choose someone to spend your life with, or for all of us, as we choose friends to do life with, understand that the gravitational pull on our hearts naturally in this world is away from God. Just like if I, you know, let go of this paper, you know which way it's going to go, right? It's going to fall. So when we are not intentional with our faith life, when we don't put people in our lives that will encourage us in our faith lives, that will help pull us in the right direction as we do that for them, and especially in the area of marriage, it is going to be not impossible, but it is going to be more difficult. What a blessing it is to find that person that we're going to spend life with that also has the same hope, the same Lord, the same future. But that's not what was happening here. And the world got worse. Verse five, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart were only evil all of the time. The entire population of the world, the people of the world God saw had no time for God, no time for living for him. No time to make him the Lord of their lives. They, well, the whole world turned away from him. Next verse. And so the Lord regretted. Another way to translate that Hebrew word was he grieved. He was emotionally upset that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. This is something, as you can imagine, that grieved God's heart of where the world had gone just 1,500 years after he had created it perfectly. Verse 7, so the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret, I grieve that I have made them. Now, I think we first need to make sure that we're pausing to catch the heaviness of the verse, that God had made the decision to wipe out all the human beings on the planet and also to maybe call out the elephant in the room, which may go something like this. How can God be love and decide this? This is a, a huge decision that had tons of consequences to it. How do I mesh my understanding of God's love with a decision like this? Well, there's a couple things to think about. This is why we're here, to grow in our understanding of God. The first thing I want you to think about as you navigate that question is this, that the creator, he's the one in charge of his creation. So if I decided to sculpt something, okay, first of all, it would look horrible, okay? I am not an artist, but if I decided to sculpt something, 
And you decided, well, it looked horrible and you're going to destroy it and you knock it over and break it. That would be rude. If I decide to scrap it and start over, well, that's within my right because I'm the artist. It's mine. You see, God is the one who gives life. And he is the one, the only one, who has the right to decide when it's over. And even the Psalms tell us this. It says that every day was written in his book before one of them came to be. Whether it's through a flood or natural means, understand you're not in control of when you die. There was only one person who was in control of that. That was Jesus when he gave up his breath and his life. God is in control. The creator is in charge of his creation. It always has been that way. It always will be. Number two, God is just. Sin can't be ignored. I've shared this story before, but when I was a kid, I was playing wiffle ball in a neighbor's yard and we ended up breaking the window of our our neighbor. And as I shared that news with him, he handled it very graciously, but here's the reality. Someone was going to need to pay for that window. Actually, you had three options. One, I pay. Number two, he pays through his insurance. Number three, You just leave it broken. That's the way it is with sin. God is just. And so he cannot leave what's been broken, broken. If he just ignored sin, he would no longer be holy. He would no longer be God. What was broken needed to be fixed. And so either we pay or, well, this is what we celebrate, God paid for it through his son. There was a world of people who had rejected the gift of God's payment, the promise of the savior. And so what was left? Well, we need to pay. And as God looked at the world, as God saw how far they had gone away from him, he decided there's no coming back from this. It's time, I'm done. And he makes this decision in his perfect justice. I think the last thing we, we learn from this and how God acted with this worldwide flood is, well, our first fill-in. God always works with eternity in mind. I think, I think this first is helpful when we recognize that God cares more about your eternal residence than your temporal happiness. Let me say that again. God cares more about your eternal residence than your temporal happiness. And so he can still perfectly love you even when your life doesn't seem to be going the way that you want it because he doesn't work in your life to make you happy. He works in our lives so that we might be holy through his son. And so as God looks at the world, as God thought so many years ago about his plan, his promise of salvation, God never took his eye off of his salvation plan. And so this, this flood, it, we don't know all the details, but it was 
important as God spared, as God kept a remnant safe that eventually the Savior, Jesus, would come from because God always works with eternity in mind. And this was a part of his plan. Billion people, maybe, wiped out in the flood. But verse eight goes this way. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Why? Because he was a a perfect guy? All you have to do is read ahead in Genesis. You'll find that he wasn't. He had an episode with alcohol that uh, produced a pretty embarrassing thing in, in his life. That's just one example of how Noah wasn't perfect. But the word for favor there is the word grace. Noah was one who walked with God and experienced his grace. He found God's grace in his life. The Lord was the Lord of his life. That's what was special about Noah. And he was about the only one. It was going to be him in the ark, his wife, and his three sons and their wives, eight people in the ark, the rest of the world destroyed. And so this is what God tells Noah. He says, go make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. There are a ton of artist renditions of the ark. There is actually a place you can go in Kentucky to actually see a replica of the ark. Um, I just pulled this off of the internet, but basically what we read in Genesis 6 is that this ark was about 400 feet, 450 feet long, so about a football field and a half. It was about 75 feet wide and about 45 feet tall. This ark was going to house for about a year, eight people, and then a male and female of every species of animal on the earth. So what that meant was if there were different, you know, versions of dogs, let's say, different breeds, it wasn't every breed, it was two dogs and two cats and two llamas and two guinea pigs and so on and so forth. And then, well, then it's written this about Noah. He did everything just as God commanded him. And I want you to think about that for a moment. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. (laughs) This was not a small ask, was it? Build me a big wooden box that's a football field and a half long. I just wanted you to think if you were one of his three sons. Um, You already are having a hard time at school because your dad named you Shem, Ham, and Japheth, okay? But then you're the sons of the guy who's building this huge wooden structure outside the house, right? (laughs) Or think about the neighbors, right? Grabbing your morning coffee, looking out the window with your, your, your wife. Honey, he's out there again. It's been 50 years. Every day he's out there building on this thing. 
you called homeowners association yet? This is definitely causing there to be not a good scene in our neighborhood, right? I mean, just think about how hard it was culturally, socially. Think about how hard it was physically. Think about the equipment he had and the equipment that he didn't have. Over a hundred years, Noah every day worked on building this ark. I think it's amazing when it says Noah did everything just as God commanded him. And I think it's great uh, encouragement for us as far as what does it look like to follow God. It starts with faith. It starts with what God does in us. But then as Christians, number two, following God, how does it look? It means obeying God. It means obeying God's calling on our life. It starts with what he does in us, but there's a response to it that's filled with with us living for him and carrying out whatever calling he has on your life right now. Noah did that. God's called us to that as well. And so after about 100 years, God tells Noah, okay, the the ark is done. The animals are in it. Get in there with your, your family. Close the door. Guess what happened next? Nothing. In fact, I don't know if you ever thought about this before. I didn't catch it until just a short time ago. But for seven days, they're in this ark and there is no rain. And I can just imagine his wife being like, Noah, are you sure God said build an ark? Maybe he said build a park and you misheard him. There is no rain. We've been sitting in here for a week. And they were just waiting, waiting on God. Have you ever felt like you're waiting on God? You felt like you've been following him. You felt like you've been doing the right thing, but whatever it is you're praying for, whatever promises that he's given to you, it seems like there's just radio silence, right? I want you to know that even in the silence, God is working and God never fails on his promises. What he says will happen. And so seven days in, what God said happened and it started to rain. For 40 days, rain came like sheets from the sky. And then it says that waters came from below, from the ground. In fact, many would speculate that this is the time where potentially the continents were formed, where all of the landmass of our, our world, if you look at the globe, you can kind of see how the continents could fit together. That it is this worldwide flood that spread them apart for uh, the very first time and c- created the continents. And the rains came so hard that they covered the highest mountains and killed all of life, except for eight people and the animals on the ark. Now, I contemplated, because there is a lot that could be said to prove little glimpses that God has given us to prove that this worldwide flood actually happened. There's a lot that you can, can Google. I think one of them very easily to, to share real quick would be, did you know that on the tops of some of the highest peaks in our, our world, including Mount Everest, that there have been found marine life fossils, like fish? Let me ask, how did those get there? I don't think it was, you know, hey, um, Goldie died. Let's carry Goldie to the top of Mount Everest and bury it there. 
But God gives us these little glimpses of things still around today that show us that this worldwide flood is something that isn't only recorded in the Bible, but is something that is absolutely true. God's word can be trusted. And then the rain stopped. And through that ark, God saved a remnant from whom eventually the Savior would come. Now, I have a question that might sound at first like a duh question, but that's okay. What's an ark? And I think the logical answer that most of us would say is big boat. You're kind of right. But do you know that the only reason why ark has the definition, at least one of them, a lower definition of big boat is because of Noah? That otherwise there would not be the definition of ark be big boat. An ark, think ark of the covenant, is a box, a box to protect something, a protective container. That's, think about this, that's what God asked Noah to build. A boat has a rudder, it has a steering wheel, it has compulsion. This ark was a big box that God asked Noah to build over a hundred years to protect something, to protect the remnant. And I was thinking about this this last week. There's nothing Noah could do for that year in the box except sit in the protective covering of God. Think about this. This is not a boat that you can control. It is a box that just floats. Noah and his family begin to see some dry land starting to appear as the waters evaporate. He has no ability to move the boat over to the dry land. His entire time in the ark was one of trusting God and his plan. I'm going to put my family in this protective covering, this protective container, and I'm just going to trust. That's what he did. That's what we need to do. We need to and we can trust God. Number three, you can loosen your grip and trust God's grip. He will never fail you. He will never hurt you. He has eternity in mind. You know, maybe you can relate to this. When, when I was, uh, when my kids were younger, um, we'd go to the grocery store. And at the time, I don't know if they still have them, but there were some grocery carts that you'd have like the, the front of a car, plastic car on the front. And my kids would always, you know, jump for those. And then there was a steering wheel and things. And you know how dads like to have fun usually. So, um, you know, I would, I would play with the kids a little bit. And as they turned the steering wheel right, I would move the 
cart right. And as they turned left, we would go left. And as they go, vroom, you know, I would go faster, right? And Carrie's like rolling her eyes at me at this point. But, you know, we're, we're having some fun. But at a certain point, I had some groceries to buy. And even if they want to go right, the eggs were left. I had a job to do. I had things to do. I had a plan to carry out. And so at some point, they turn right, and I got to go left because I know where we need to go. And sometimes we think we're telling God where we need to go, and we're holding on to that steering wheel. And, and some of you, we all like control. Some of you like control more than others. And no elbows right now because in every family, you know who that person is, right? But, but our control is just a mirage. We don't have much control. If anything, the, these last few years have taught us, life has taught us, we have control over very little. What are you going to do if the stock market continues to plunge? Ultimately, you can move the money, but we're, we're not in control. If God decides today is a day you're coming to heaven with me, what are you going to do? We're not in control. So we can either grip tighter and live our lives with our, our arms exhausted, trying to hold on and control, or we can loosen our grip and trust God's and to know that he's got us, just like he had Noah and his family. Well, then God puts a rainbow in the sky and <clears throat> he makes this promise that he will never destroy the earth again with a flood. And that has not happened because God does not, does not fail on his promises. But as we apply this, as we close and apply all of this to our life right now, I want to skip ahead to a letter that Peter wrote. Listen to what he writes as he compares and contrasts with the flood. He writes, above all, you must understand that in the last day, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming that Jesus has promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. This is the time we're living in right now since the, the resurrection and the ascension of Christ, verse five. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. And by these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed, reference to the flood. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Here's the truth, and then I'm going to give you hope. The world is still filled with lots of sin, and it feels at times like it's getting worse, doesn't it? God predicted that. And someday, Jesus is going to come back on Judgment Day. The world will not be destroyed by water. God promised that. But this heaven and this earth that has been contaminated by sin will be destroyed and recreated and made new, refined by fire. And yet, a remnant will remain. You see, God took out his righteous justice, not on all the people of the world, 
but on his son, Jesus. And guess what Jesus is? Jesus, through his death and resurrection, is your ark. He is your protective covering. He is your protective container. Cling to him. You don't need a rudder. You don't need compulsion. You don't need a steering wheel. You know what you need? You and I, we need Jesus. And when we have him, even in a world that seems so often to be going to heck, right? There is nothing we need to fear. We can loosen our grip and cling to God's and trust God's grip. There is so much to have hope and peace about because Jesus is your ark, your protective container. The cross is your hope. Cling to it. Even in the midst of a world that seems to be heading the other direction. Last thing, as we put this into practice, cling to Jesus. But I also encourage you As you think of Noah, I so admire that God had a calling on his life, build this huge boat, and he faithfully did what God asked him to do. You might be thinking, if God asked me to build a boat, I'd do it. If God called me to do mission work in Thailand or in Africa, I'd do it, sign me up. But what if God calls you to be all in with your family and kids and to make them a priority and your career and your job secondary? Are we all in? Or or what if God's call on you right now is to fight for your marriage? Don't give up. I know it's going to be hard, but fight for it. Are we all in? What if his calling is be generous? You're so selfish. You think about yourself all the time. You use all your resources for yourself. Be generous, give back, love others. What if his calling is forgive? Like God has forgiven you. What if God's calling on your life right now is for purity? Recognizing that God has created sexuality for one arena, and that being marriage. What if God's calling on you is is to put down the bottle and to quit partying so much? I'll go to Africa. (laughs) But God has a calling on your life right now. One that we can graciously and lovingly carry out so cling to Jesus. He's your ark. He's what you need. And as you wait for his return, carry out whatever calling he has on your life right now. Let's pray. Dear Lord, uh, we, we thank you for your grace and your love. You are a just God. You need to be because you're holy and sin needs to be punished. But we thank you that you took out your punishment on Jesus Christ. And now we, we get to live in hope and peace not gripping on to our control, but instead trusting you for all that you have promised to us and for eternity that we get to spend with you. To that end, Lord, be with us. In Jesus' name, amen.